Is debt holding you back from fulfilling your life calling? Hi, I'm Joel Moutre, and you're listening to the Learn and Share podcast. In today's episode, I speak with budgeting blogger Alistair Wong, who shares tips on how to budget, save, and manage money to God's glory. Alistair Wong, thank you for joining the podcast. Great to be here. We're talking about Christian finance today. And, uh, you know, finance is just something that affects everyone in, in so many different areas of life. Why is finance is important to the Christian? That's the fundamental question, isn't it? Uh, really, it's been said, I don't know exactly who said it, but money isn't everything, but everything takes money. And so really, we can't escape it. And money is just part and parcel to every aspect of life. And so we really have to grapple with how are we going to deal with this. But for a Christian, it's even more of an issue because we're told that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so in our Christian journey, it's sort of unavoidable. This is like that a spiritual battle that we know we're going to have to face. And so if we're going to face it, we better face it prepared. No, absolutely. It's very, very, very important. And uh, <clears throat> now the reason we wanted to have you in is because you have a blog, which is uh, savingthecrumbs.com. That's right. And you and your wife went on a journey mm-hmm. uh, to with finances and different things like that. Uh, just to get started off, we just want to ask. I just want to ask you a few funny questions here. Sure. Um, you guys were extremely frugal. Uh, still are. Still are. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, well, you guys, with your wedding, you guys spent like 30000 right? Ah. Which is like the average, I think. It is the U.S. national average, about $30,000. That was a couple of years ago. It might be more than that now. But we actually spent only 3000 for our wedding. $3,000? Yes. And we don't make ourselves a criteria for anyone else, of course. But, uh, yeah, that's what we did. That's awesome. Now, I mean, did you have to, like literally walk down the aisle with like, you know, grass as, you know, flowers or I mean, did you guys have a nice wedding? Uh, well, uh, best wedding I've ever been to. In fact, um, (laughs) you know, it's funny cause yeah, I say that and people are envisioning like, Oh, you just had like a shotgun wedding at the courthouse. Right. (laughs) And then you just went out for fancy dinner. Uh, no, actually we had, uh, about 200 guests. We had a real church. We had real flowers, um, dress, real wedding dress, you know, food. We had a full meal for people, a reception afterwards. Uh, now the 3000 does not include our honeymoon. Uh, we actually spent more than that uh, for the honeymoon. But um, my wife really was the mastermind behind behind the wedding uh, and how to keep the prices down like that. I just went along for the ride and, you know, wrote the check. But, yeah, somehow we did it. So you're really, really into finances, and you like being frugal. You and your wife have had a journey uh, on yeah. uh, savingthecrumbs.com. You guys have blogs and stories and all kinds of uh, information to help yep. people reading mm-hmm. and, and to mm-hmm. learn about Christian finance. Right. How did you get into this? Just give a, a little summary of like yeah. why you, why Christian finance and why do you mm-hmm. even start posting about it? Yeah, that's a good question. How did we get started? You know, my wife and I were sort of weird like that where dinner time conversation, we're thinking, you know, what, what do we talk about as a couple? And we realized we really enjoy talking about money and not like, you know, getting rich type of thing, even though we don't mind that either, but just saving money and the things that really brought us together were, you know, for forays out into the thrift store or Craigslist bargains and things like that. And we realized, Hey, you know, we'd like to remember some of these 
experiences and some of the things that we learned along the way, things that we did that might actually be helpful in the future. We were thinking really for our future children, if nothing else, and also for our own sake of remembering what happened. And since, you know, you can start a website for close to nothing now, we thought, hey, we'll just post it, see what people think. Maybe some people will like it. If people shoot enough, you know, arrows at us or rotten tomatoes, we'll just, you know, we don't have to do it anymore. It wasn't like this big plan to start a business or anything. And, uh, well, from there, uh, it got quite a response from people who resonated and were interested. And uh, it really, I guess, highlighted how unusual we were and how strange we think and uh, and so we've just been so blessed to be able to help people. Uh, we we have regular contact with lots of people who email us, write us, uh, read our blog, Facebook, whatever. And I also do a fair amount of speaking now for seminars, and I get to talk with people. And uh, it's just such a blessing that from our own experience, we're able to help other people. Uh, like we said at the top, it's uh, such a common human experience to deal with money that I feel like uh, it's become re- uh, quite a ministry. You you labeled yourself and your wife as kind of weird and having to do things different. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're trying to save money, when you're trying to be frugal, when you're trying to uh, use your finances to help other people, et cetera, it takes sacrifice. Um, yeah. A famous Christian finance um, influencer, Dave Ramsey, says mm-hmm. you got to live like no one else yeah, so that you can then live like no one else yes, and absolutely. give like no one else. Comment on that. Like what kind of sacrifices have you and your wife, you did to like, be frugal, I guess. Well, I'll give you an extreme example. This is one of the things, the extremes that we went to that I don't recommend anyone do because we don't even do this anymore. Uh, but we actually, um, the first winter after we moved into our, our house, first house that we bought, we uh, realized we were trying to save on the electric bill because we, uh, you know, had an electric heat pump for heating the house and stuff. So, and we were working all day. We would be out of the house all day. So it would be on away mode. The heat wouldn't be on. We come home for a few hours in the evening and then we go to bed. So we're like, why should we blast the heat to make it warm for the couple hours? So we just kept the heat off. It was like 50 degrees in the house, 55 in the dead of winter. And we would come home and we would put on ski pants in the house, right? So we would come home and put on our jackets and stuff. And, uh, you know, in the end, if we tallied up how much we saved, yeah, it might have been a couple hundred bucks over the whole winter, but it, it's not worth it. Uh, but we would think of things like that, that we would do. And, you know, we would course correct and realize, you know, some things are just going a little a bridge too far type of thing. Uh, but every aspect of our lives now, we really think through how can we be most efficient with how we use our resources? And uh, we also ask the question, is there a better way? We don't just take the, uh, the what everybody else does as, oh, well, that's the way it has to be. We like to challenge the status quo a little bit and especially how, uh, how we live. I've listened to several of your seminars and one of the mm-hmm. phrases that really stood out to me was, uh, that really impacted me in my own financial journey mm-hmm. was the phrase that you said, long-term goals dictate short-term spending. That literally just blew my mind. Oh, yeah. Uh, comment on that and also on the topic of a budget. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, are we, do we have to keep track of every penny? Uh, you know, how does that go with daily spending and all that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really is one of the fundamental principles that, for me, really changed my view of money, too, because I grew up like any other young person. I got my first paycheck after my first job, and I'm like, oh, what can I buy with this? 
like shoes or you know toys cameras whatever it might be uh but the light bulb moment is when i think about budgeting right nowadays people realize oh i have to budget it's like oh i have to lose weight i have to go on a diet it's like this painful punishment to go on uh to go on a budget and i think we have a misconception of what a budget really is a budget we think of now as something that is a punishment to tell us what we can't do handcuffs to say you shouldn't buy that you shouldn't spend it on that you shouldn't go there well it doesn't explain why uh, but a budget really should be the way we should think about a budget is a plan to get us where we want to go or a plan to help us accomplish what we want to do and that's where the, where you're getting at with the long-term thinking because it, the analogy the example is you know if I'm going on a vacation on a road trip I'll, I'll say we're going on this road trip to go to the Grand Canyon because that's our destination. That's our goal, the national park. We never say the goal on this road trip is to not run out of gas because it's presupposed. If I'm going to get there, I'm not going to run out of gas. And so when we think about the budget, we're just saying, oh, my goal is to not spend more than I make. That's just not running out of gas. The point is, what am I trying to accomplish in my life, whether it's paying off debt, buying a house, paying for my kids to go through college, or buying the new car, whatever it is that I need, we need to start there, and that's actually in harmony with Christ's counsel to count the cost before you start building, right? He's talking about if a man builds a tower, if he doesn't count the cost, he might run out of money, and everyone's laughing at him. It's the same principle. We've got to think long-term, what is it that I'm trying to accomplish? You know, project the numbers, and it's not going to be perfect. We're going to do our best, and there's going to be estimates and stuff, and then we figure back from that, well, how do I need to adjust my spending today so that I have enough left over to reach those goals? And when we think about it that way, the biggest benefit is now we have the answer to the question of why shouldn't I buy that? Why shouldn't I spend the money on this? Because I have the money, right? Quote, unquote, I can afford it. Famous last words. But um, when we look at the dress or whatever it is that we want to want to buy and we realize, hey, um, if I don't go through with this purchase, it will enable me to go on that vacation next year or I can afford that mission trip next summer or I can buy that car that I've been needing that much sooner. It's a lot more motivating. It becomes, you know, uh, there's a reason. There's a motive behind why uh, we we adjust our lifestyle. So, yeah, I, I believe that is one of the bedrock principles, one of the most revolutionary things to me, too, uh, as far as thinking about money. So a lot of the people listening here are young people, young mm -hmm. adults uh, in high school, college, maybe a little bit after that. And it's something that's on all everyone's mind is maybe one day I'll be married. Yes. And there also is the concept of being ready for marriage. How right. does finance go into that? Some people say you have to have $10,000 in mm. the bank. Is there a certain number or is that just something that's showing really an underlying principle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, but to answer the $10,000 question first, uh, I didn't have $10,000 in the bank when I got married. So I lose, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but my wife did, so maybe I win. But um, as far as the question goes, I, I don't think the dollar amount is really the point. Uh, even though, sure, the more you have saved up, the more cushion you have to uh, smooth out the, the rough patches that might come uh, with adjustment in life. But 
really, I think the key here is, is there a financial literacy? Is there a stability? And is there the maturity that generally is revealed with someone's uh, not just bank account balance, but just do they know how to manage money? Can they hold down a job? Are they responsible? Do they know how to pay the bills and, you know, bring home the stripples, I guess? Um, you know, you, you look at the you look at a young person and the readiness for marriage really uh, is can this person provide for a family? Because that's sort of the goal, right, of having uh, uh, getting married and, and getting into this relationship. So I really think that the key here is to not look merely at the dollar signs, dollar amount, but to investigate really, is this person financially mature? Because I'll be frank, particularly, you know, we're, we're talking about GYC and ministry focus. And a lot of times, uh, a lot of us young men, we get called into positions that don't pay much. Uh, as a young person who want to serve the Lord, and we may not make $10,000 even in a whole year. Uh, in fact, I didn't when I got married, you know? So it was, uh, it, would be, it would be unfair, I think, to those young men who are mature, who have given their lives to the Lord, but just because they've chosen a sacrificial path uh, that we're going to hold that against them. But at the same time, we need to hold their feet to the fire and make sure that they are responsible and uh, they're still able to um, make those good financial decisions. I know we talked about this in relation to guys. You and I are you know, both males, and we, we think of that as the provider kind of a thing. Sure. Do you have anything to say about young women who are considering being ready financially for marriage? I think uh, the principles apply just the same. Uh, Ellen White has the counsel about, you know, every woman should know how to harness a horse. Today it might be, you know, changing the oil or changing a flat tire or something like that might be more analogous. I think the principle behind that is women should also be capable of uh, taking care of, you know, the needs in the household and taking care of themselves and being responsible and all those kinds of things. And women tend to be better than men at those things anyway. Uh, and so, yeah, while I do believe, you know, men need to stand up and be responsible to be the breadwinner of the home and the house band, as the name husband represents, uh, I think it's just as relevant for women to learn how to balance the checkbook and run a budget and, you know, all the rest, pay the bills and things like that. Let's uh, let's ask the million-dollar question. Ooh. No pun intended. Okay. Is debt bad? Oh. And if so, like, what's the guy? Like, how do I know? That is a big question, isn't it? And, uh, boy, uh, the, the short answer is uh, yes, debt is bad. And how do I know that? The Bible says that borrower is servant which is better translated slave uh, borrower is slave to the lender uh, slavery is never a good thing especially when we're the slave but when then in the spirit of prophecy Ellen White also says we ought to avoid debt like smallpox so it's like it's like this imagine if you were a slave that had smallpox that's bad very very bad it's not a state anyone wants to be in uh, but I do want to mention this, and that is, at the same time, it's not a sin, right? Because it's sometimes cast in light, like, if you have to borrow money, it's like a moral sin that you have to repent and sackcloth and ashes for. It's not a state that is ideal, but it's not a sin to be sick. It's not a sin to be enslaved, but it's just bad. So 
you know, there's this term good debt, bad debt. And that's where, you know, sometimes people differentiate, you know, when, when it's appropriate to have debt. You know, I, I just don't see that distinction in the Bible where debt is good. It's always slavery to, to the lender. It's always uh, analogous to smallpox. So when is it acceptable, I think, is a better way to put it. When is it maybe acceptable? S- maybe smart debt and dumb debt. Maybe. maybe, maybe. I'm not sure I'd give it that either. <laughs> but uh, there is, but to your point, though, there are times when debt is permissible. And so your question is, um, how do we know? How do we know? So uh, there are really just two rules with a third sort of thrown in there. Uh, the two rules, number one, is never borrow money for something that only goes down in value. It's just math. It's just being smart. <laughs> uh, you don't want to buy something that you're going to overpay because you're paying interest, plus it goes down in value, so you're losing on both ends of the deal. And that's one of the surest ways of losing, losing money. What's some examples of that category? Uh, I'll come back to that in just a second because the second rule is just dovetailed. It, it, it's sort of the flip side of the same coin. The second rule is borrowing is acceptable only if what you're purchasing with the money will increase in value and eventually pay off the debt. So don't borrow for something that only goes down in value, but borrowing is acceptable if it can increase in value and eventually pay off what you borrowed. So to your question of an example, you know, borrowing money to buy a new phone, for example, we all know that iPhones go down in price every year. So if we're borrowing money, we're paying interest, and then a year later, we've paid more than full price because of the interest cost on a phone that's worth less than full price. So we've lost, you know, extra money. Uh, so that's that's something that goes down in value. It doesn't pay itself off. However, if let's say it's a house, on the other hand, you're buying a house, and most of the time, uh, there's definitely a strong potential for the value of the home to go up. And so if the value of the home goes up, uh, it actually is permissible because in the end, it actually earns money uh, back and also in the form of uh, the rent payments that you don't have to pay. So student loans would also fall into a form of acceptable debt, uh, even though it is probably growing into a national crisis, at least in the United States. Um, But the idea is that an education increases our earning capacity. And so the career that we can get uh, with education will earn back uh, the price of borrowing. So, yeah, those are some of the guidelines. Oh, and the third one I forgot to mention to throw in there is um, just remember to only borrow what you need. It's not free money. As young people, many of us are going through college. We're, you know, we're trying to do our budget. We're, Mm -hmm. We're earning our first dollars right as a young person and becoming an adult and we're like what i have to give 10 percent away mm-hmm. it just kind of like a, it doesn't make sense why would you live off a of 90 percent when you have the you know sometimes it, it mentally and mathematically doesn't always add up sure what does the bible have to say about tithe and offering and how we can trust in god in that area and the blessings related that is a great question and it really drives at the root of personal finance for the christian uh, in the world the money that we earn, we view as ours. But from the Christian framework, we are managers only of what belongs to God. And so I like to think of it this way. I'm the CEO of my life, but God's the owner. And so as the owner, he ultimately has final control over everything, and he is owed the profits that is generated through this enterprise. And so 
the ten percent is just like the dividends that we return on a systematic basis to our owner, and you know what? It simply represents that he owns a hundred percent. That's the that's the difference between the Christian worldview and how the world views it. And when we think about think about it that way, then it becomes a lot more clear why God says in Malachi that you know you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. If we don't return our tithes and offerings, God says you're robbing me. Well, how can we be robbing Him when it's our money that we earn? It's like, uh, uh, no, you didn't earn that. Uh, I mean, you did earn it, but it still belongs to me because everything that you have, I gave to you. So it's interesting uh, that you bring this up in the framework of tithes and offerings, because the uh, in Malachi there, robbery. Um, God talks about robbery, and it's not just tithe. He also talks about the offerings. And uh, tithe is specially reserved for a specific purpose, and it's for the gospel ministry. And, you know, there are lots of resources that delve into that. I won't get into all the specifics there. But as far as the offerings go, they're not optional either. At least that's the how, how I read Malachi. But uh, in various places, councils on stewardship and other places, it's described as what we give as God has prospered us. And uh, without getting into all the specifics here, uh, there are actually principles uh, related to the offerings as well. And so there's the 10% tithe. And then beyond that, there are percentages of our income that can be given back as offerings. And the main difference with offerings is that it is not restricted solely for the use of supporting the gospel. It can be for uh, any support of uh, the gospel work in other areas as well. And uh, I know I may not be explaining it with all the details, but I know there are resources out there that, that flesh this out more from the church. Thanks for sharing that. I know that there's many resources even on your website, sure. savingthecrumbs.com. Mm-hmm. So I know we're talking about finances here. We're talking about the, the, the goal of denying self so that we can take care of our families, spread the gospel, give money back to God, etc. That doesn't come naturally to us, mm-hmm. and I don't think it came naturally to you either. No, definitely Could not. Could you share with us a story in closing uh, of a, a story that would inspire and activate us, activate me and, and activate the listener to say, you know what, I want to give put God first in my finances, and I want, mm-hmm. to, I, I want to choose to trust him with this and I want to choose to become more aware and to self-educate and to learn more in this area yeah well uh, I'll go right back to my master's program when I was a student and um, it was the year right after I got married and actually I have to start before we got married because the summer before we were on our way to the GC session in Atlanta and we stopped by Southern Avenue University where I had enrolled to be in the master's program and uh, when I showed up in the business school where I was enrolled, uh, a gentleman came bounding across the office shouting, hey, hey, you, you, I know you. And he said, were you driving in a white Honda Accord on I-75 southbound yesterday? And I'm like, who is this guy? How do you know? Have you been spying on me? Well, as it turns out, he and his wife were driving on the same road and he looked over at us and he mentioned his wife, you know, those look like some fine Avenus young people and I bet they're going to the GC session in Atlanta. And uh, what gave it away, I guess, was my license plate cover, the little, per, uh, or the little frame, I should say. It said Loma Linda on it, which is where I'm originally from. And so he put two and two together and 
here I am sitting in his office, uh, enrolling to be in his master's program. He was the dean of the School of Business. And we walked into that office and we thought, wow, that was strange, but it somehow felt like a divine appointment. And so we got married a few months later, and then the next a few months after that, in January, I was starting my master's program, and we had made a commitment, my wife and I, that we wanted to use our influence in ministry. And this master's degree was going to be committed for God's work, and so I didn't want to go into debt. I wanted to be able to be free so that I can serve him wherever it might be, even if it's very low paying, which generally is what we mean when we say work in ministry, right? And so it was one week into my program. I was already in classes. I was doing homework. I had a, we had a good, nice friend who let us stay in their basement for free because we didn't know what we could afford, where we could rent. It was a rather stressful time. Newly married, I felt like I was a failure as a husband. I'm not providing for my wife. I'm in school. She has to look for a job, and she's going to have to make the money to pay my way through, and we might have to borrow money. There's all these doubts right, going through my head, and I apply for jobs all over the place, and nothing really came came to be. I was you know, a hair's breadth away from uh, becoming a Walmart greeter. I mean, I was willing to do it all, anything, right? And then I got this email one line, have you found a job? And who was it? It was my dean of the School of Business. And he's, and I, of course, I wrote him back right away, and he said, come to my office right now. So I thought, great, I don't have to do my homework right now. I need to go see this guy. So I went to his office. Long story short, he had a brand-new graduate assistantship program that was opening up uh, basically for his office, working for him. And I was the first name that came to mind. And in that moment, I realized, oh, well, the reason why it came to mind was because I'm the guy that got stuck in his memory as, you know, the Avenue's guy driving to GC in on I-75 South. And I thought, wow, praise the Lord. And I accepted the job, and it was a job that covered my entire graduate school tuition. I had to work. You know, I had to extend my program. I had to work on all my breaks and you know, there were some sacrifices involved, but boy, I was praising the Lord because he honored my commitment. I, my wife and I, we determined that we wanted to serve him, God, and no man can serve two masters. And we realized if we were, you know, indebted to the lender, we're going to have split allegiances and we're going to have a hard time working for him. And so he honored that. And of course, we did our part of the bargain. We you know, we scrimped and saved, and we lived in a small basement apartment. We rented the cheapest thing we could, and we managed our money in such a way that we didn't have to borrow money uh, to get through our education. And then now, you know, with that education, I, I'm i trying my best to fulfill my end of the bargain. I'm still in ministry work, and because of some of those sacrifices and, and the overall philosophy of money and the budgeting decisions that we've made, uh, we've been able to continue working in a relatively low-paying type of position uh, while not really being, uh, I would say, for the worse, you know? We're still able to live a very comfortable life, a blessed life. We have a daughter now, and uh, we own our home and all of those kind of things. So, you know, I think the, the lesson for the young people who might be listening to this is that uh, bring our loaves and fishes to him. We might not have the benefits or the privileges that some other people might have, but God can bless what we give him. And as long as we're faithful, as long as we place him first, as long as we aren't robbing him in our tithes and offerings and following the principles and all the rest, 
He's able to do things for us that we can't do for ourselves. But if we're not in a position where we are committed and, and sacrificial and, and surrender to his will, we don't really give him that kind of permission to act in our lives. So I just want to encourage the young people out there, he can do it for you too. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe and share this episode with your friends. To learn more, check us out at learnandsharepodcast.com.